welcome to the Production Talk podcast with me, Jan of MixArtist.com.au. In this podcast series, we celebrate the modern way of producing music. We want to talk about all things related to songwriting, recording at home and music production. So if you produce your music at home, this is the place to be. Please subscribe and recommend this podcast to all your friends. This is the Production Talk Podcast, Episode 60. Welcome back to another episode of the Production Talk Podcast. At the beginning of this episode, I would like to acknowledge the tradition owners and custodians of the country that this following interview is recorded on, the Arakwal people of the Banjalong Nation. And I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. With me today is Mr. Neil Wilson of Suitcase Records. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm good, yeah. How are you going? I'm really good. It's a sunny morning. I've got a cup of coffee going and uh, uh, yeah, it looks like the beginning of a fantastic day. Excellent. Uh, Neil, you are in the business of producing vinyl. Fill us in, please. What are you up to? Well, we're, we're literally just starting up, um, well, not, sorry, not starting up a business. We've started our business, but we're about to start pressing, which is great. Um, so we, uh, we're the first pressing plant in Brisbane in about 30 years. Um, and we're the third pressing plant in Australia. There's already two down in Melbourne. Um, so it's a journey that we've been on for probably almost two years now um, since the day I kind of said to my wife, hey, we could start a record pressing plant. Um, and she said, yeah, sure, thinking I was joking until about, you know, two weeks later I said, okay, well, these are the machines we could get. And she thought, oh, you're serious. <laughs> so... Um, it's it's sort of been born out of a few things. I my background is is varied. Um, most recently, I'm uh, I'm an architect by by background, um, and also many years ago studied uh, urban planning and, and landscape architecture, um, and have you know worked in other things. I've worked in hospitality, like most of us. Um, you know, I've done everything from landscape gardening to uh, to picking fruit to sort of you name it. Um, But uh, when I was 30, I went and studied architecture um, and worked in architecture for a long time um, up until about eight, nine years ago when I sort of transitioned across into large construction firms doing design and project management. Um, and I suppose I got to a point a couple of years ago where I really wasn't happy in what I was doing, wasn't enjoying it at all. Um, and started to think about, well, what could I do? Um, and I suppose that string had been stretched a bit too far to think about going back to pure architecture. Um, and I was ready for a change. I've always been a fairly creative person, um, and I found that I really wasn't doing anything creative anymore. Um, and I started to look around at some various ideas, um, and some were okay, and, but nothing was really sort of exciting me. Um I've always loved music from a very young age. Music's been um, something very special to me. Um, we, um, unfortunately, I'm fairly average at playing music. <laughs> I played tuba as a child. Um, it didn't sound much like a tuba. It probably sounded like um, someone had had a bad breakfast, to be honest. Um, <laughs> and in sort of my later years, I've tried to learn guitar and I know half a dozen chords fairly badly. Um, 
but um, but it's always been this you know this sort of this constant part of my life. Um, and probably about fifteen years ago, I started getting back into vinyl. I was into vinyl in a big way as you know as a, as a child and in my sort of teen years. But then obviously CDs took over and music sort of moved and and I moved with it. But about fifteen years ago, I started getting back into it. Um, and this is a long way of getting around to when uh, about a couple of years ago I saw an article about the the undersupply of, of vinyl and the demand for vinyl. Um, you know, the, there was such a growth in the industry and, and um, supply wasn't keeping up. And I thought that was really interesting but didn't think too much about it until only a couple of weeks after that. I saw an article about um, uh, some people starting up a new pressing plant Um and the thing that sort of caught my attention was was two things. Firstly, the people starting the plant didn't come from a music background. Um, so I thought, okay, that's interesting. Um, and then the second thing was the machines they were using. So they were starting with um, a Canadian machine called, um, it's a company called uh, Viral, and the machine is um, a warm tone. Um, and so I started to think, well, you know, if these people who don't have a music background and really don't have a manufacturing background can do this, well, maybe this is something I can do. So I got in touch with that company um, and started to, I suppose, really dig into, well, what, what's involved in making records? Um, and Viral were very good, very helpful. They gave me some great information. Um, but I suppose the, the project management background in me said, well, you know, do more research. Um, so I started looking at all the various options and all the various machines. Um, and there's there's sort of four main suppliers out there um, of, um, I suppose, um, you know, for not the best term, but for an off-the-shelf solution. Um, the major pressing plants in the world, a lot of them have their own designs and they actually get their own machines fabricated, but there's about four companies that will make a machine um, uh, that comes with a set of specifications that you can you know, purchase. Um, and after doing quite a bit of research, we settled on the machine that we've now got. Um, it's a machine called an Allegro 2. It's designed and manufactured by a company based out of Hong Kong called Mtech, um, and it's actually a joint venture between Mtech and a company out of Italy um, called uh, MS Cerrone. Um, now, the company out of Hong Kong, Mtech, they were making or have been making CD manufacturing and DVD manufacturing equipment for probably 25 years. Um, but, you know, like a lot of people, they saw that that was starting to ease off and vinyl was becoming something. And there are some similarities in in the process of making both CD and vinyl. Um, so they pivoted it across and started to look at vinyl machines. Um, and then the Italian company, MS Cerrone, is owned by a gentleman, Franco Cerrone, who ran EMI's production in Europe for probably 20 years um, in both vinyl and CD, and he had an existing relationship with the company in Hong Kong, Mtech. So they developed this machine. This is the second generation. Um, all the machines operate in similar in a similar fashion, um, and they all have pluses and minuses. The thing we loved about this machine was um, it came from... It came out of a manufacturing background as opposed to looking at you know what mach how machines had always produced vinyl. So there was some 
new design, you know, there were some new design elements within it that I thought were interesting. And the other good thing is it has a, a very good manual function, which means that down the track we can look at doing other types of pressing, such as picture discs or um, splatters, which are obviously very um, popular. Um, it's not something we're going to do straight off, but we've got that capacity. So we, we sort of, you know, discussed with them, um, you know, how we would go about it. Um, they offered great support um, in terms of how we might set up the, you know, the, the factory. Um, and then we pushed the button. So we sent a deposit off for the machine in about, oh, actually it was just before my birthday in October last year. So um, sent an amount of money off um, to Italy and we had this terrifying moment that potentially there's this gentleman in Italy, Franco, jumping in a brand new Maserati driving away laughing as he went <laughs> but um <laughs> but uh no the money went towards our machine which was great um in january we actually went over to england there's a new pressing plant in middlesbrough that's uh, started up called press on um, and we went over and spent about three weeks in their factory watching two of the machines that we now have uh, being commissioned which was um look a, a fantastic experience for so many reasons um great people who've set up that factory um david and danny and um you know they we just connected similar um ideas to us they had more of a music background weren't working in music but they had their own part-time label and had played in bands for years so they had a passion like i did for music um but we're also coming into manufacturing new. So I got to see how they approached it. Um, and obviously there was a lot of pluses and a lot of lessons learned there as well. Um, but the really good thing was that we, we saw the machines um, firsthand before our machine showed up. So we had that panic moment before our machine showed up because they're very, um, they're very technical machines. They're, you know, mm. they're, the machine we've got is, is effectively a fully automatic machine, robotic, um, driven by um, a CPU, a computer, essentially. There's a number of computer-driven servo motors. And when you open up the cabinet under the press and have a look in, it looks like you're looking under the bonnet of a space shuttle. So I had that moment when I opened that cabinet and just thought, oh, my God, what have I done? Wow. <laughs> this is okay. This is crazy. Yeah. Um, so I got to have that panic moment you know, out of the country. Uh, so my wife didn't see me have that panic moment, which was really good. Um, okay. And, um, and then got to actually understand it. And so by the time we left, we had a really good understanding of, of that machine, of how it operated um, and really, you know, what we needed to know um, to enable us to have, you know, a much smoother setup and commissioning process, which was great. So that was uh, that was really beneficial, and that was in January. And then from there, we've really been, um, I suppose, hammer and tong getting the business set up. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of other elements that go into a pressing factory. So obviously, you need a press, but to drive a press, you need uh, you need high pressure steam, you need chilled water, you need compressed air, and the way those components go together to drive the machine is is unique. Um, and so there was a lot of design work, working with engineers, working with uh, MTech in terms of making sure we got that system right. Um, and we did, which is good, so that when our machine, you know, finally arrived, we um, we literally, um, you know, sort of took about two, three days to, to assemble all the components. Um, and then we fired it up and did a bit more tuning and then started pressing. Uh, I think we pressed our first record five day, days after the machine showed up. It looked incredibly ugly. It was like a first pancake, um, but it played. 
and it played really well. And that mm. was this moment where we just thought, oh, my God, this might actually work. Mm. Um, so that was great. Um, the The business itself um, is it's I'm uh, co-owner with my wife. We're, we're both um, working in the business. And, and that wasn't the original idea. The original idea was that she would keep working the sensible day job so that we had, you know, some income coming in and I would do this business. But... I've, I've been, you know, dropping little crumbs along the path because it sort of dawned on me probably four months ago that she would be a fantastic, you know, sort of, um, uh, you know, co-owner and, and co-operator in the business. Um, her background is in, uh, well, she's a writer by sort of trade, a very good writer, um, and uh, but the last of 10 years she's been working for a, a company uh, producing content um, for major travel companies, which sounds a long way from pressing records. But what she's effectively been doing is running a very complex pipeline. Um, Mm. So she's come into the business um, and she runs essentially the front end. So she she deals with clients, she deals with customers, she, um, she... drives the production of the business in terms of you know how we take orders how we how we um, then go back to suppliers get the various elements that we need um, and she looks after that and does it very very well um, wow. and you know yeah she had that moment probably three or it was only probably three to four months ago where she suddenly thought oh this is this looks like fun I could be a part of this um, and that was a great moment because you know um to have uh, someone that you absolutely trust and, and believe in, sort of beside you, is is so it's such a relief. It just means mm. that you know I can really focus on uh, making records, um, and I know that um, uh, you know the, the business is is being managed you know, much better than I could manage it. Fantastic, um, which is great. Yeah, yeah um, excellent. Yeah, so a bit of a, a long-winded sort of story about how we got there, I suppose. <laughs> okay, so um, how long ago did you start pressing the first records? When did it uh, officially open? So we're officially open now. We've taken orders. We've got probably about, I think off the top of my head, we've got about 20 confirmed orders, which is great. We'll be pressing our first pressing for a customer next week. Um, but we've been pressing... Um, test pressings for probably three weeks now, um, and um, and look, we're over the moon with them. We've had a couple of clients come in and listen to those test pressings, and they're equally um, excited by them. Um, we've sent a number of them back to um, uh, our, our lacquer cutter, who was also a mastering engineer over in the states, and um, I'll talk about him because he's uh, really interesting and, and incredibly talented. Um, and they're going to do an assessment of them as well. But, um, but look, we're, we're producing fantastic quality. Um, and and that's, that's what we're about. We can't compete with the major plants um, on price. It's just a reality. Um, and so what we want to compete on is, is quality and, and looking after our, our customers, looking after musicians. Yeah. Um, and that's really where our business will sit. Fantastic. So it's all fairly fresh, still fairly new. It is, yeah. yeah. Let's just talk about musicians for a moment. Um, look, vinyl was pronounced dead decades ago, and it came back. You know, and I didn't see that coming. It hit me by surprise. But I'm, you know, definitely owner of, of a record uh, player, and I, you know, have have my little collection that I'm constantly growing. So I, I love it. How come that you know vinyl came back? What is your explanation? Why do musicians 
went back to releasing music on, on vinyl. And on that same note, do you prefer vinyl or are you strictly on records instead of vinyl? Um, in terms of a term? Of, in terms of term, yeah, I know that's a hot topic. Oh, I'm agnostic. I'll, I'll call it records, discs, <laughs> records. vinyl. Yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not particularly uh, particular about that. Mm. Um, look, it's a really good question. It's something that we get asked a lot and, and it's definitely back. I mean, it never went away. Um, that's yeah. the thing is that, you know, vinyl was continued to be pressed. But but when when CDs came in, that was, I suppose, the start of, of the hibernation for vinyl. Um And CDs promised a lot, some of which they delivered and some of which they didn't. Um, you know, CDs are a very precise um, medium. Um, you know, you're dealing in ones and zeros. They're very exact. You can contain a lot of information on a CD. So you can, you know, you can get a lot of detail um, into a CD. Um And so, you know, but they were also, you know, touted as being indestructible. I still remember when the first CDs, when CDs mm. first came out, you know, you were told you, you could drive over them and they'd still play. Um, yeah, no. And I remember getting, <laughs> yeah, I remember no. getting a very early CD and getting my mum to drive over it. And it was like, oh, that wasn't a good idea. Yeah, no. Um, you know, but, but regardless, look, so CDs mm. came in and, and that was, I suppose, the beginning. Um, but the real, I suppose, um, nail in the coffin of the vinyl was streaming. That's that's where yeah. vinyl really kind of, you know, basically went to sleep um, because streaming did a couple of things. One, it was it was incredibly convenient. Um, yeah. You didn't have to carry a record player. You didn't even have to carry a discman. You could just carry your phone. Um, and then the other thing, of course, was um, was platforms like Napster, where you effectively got free music. Um, mm. And I, like everyone, ended up with this hard drive with you know a hundred thousand tracks on it, um, and you'd burn CDs, and you know it was all just so easy. And selling music was just everywhere. Um, And that, you know, and then obviously there was a bit of a reaction against that and a deserved reaction in that artists were just absolutely getting exploited and ripped off. Um, and so then platforms like Spotify came in where, um, you know, sensibly artists were getting remunerated for their music. Um, and they are getting remunerated, but, but very badly. Um, you know, I mean, it, look, the figures are, you know, depends on who you talk to, but... You know, roughly an artist needs to have about a million streams to make probably around four and a half to six thousand Australian dollars. Mm. Um, and I saw a stat recently that was that said that really only the top five percent of, of artists on Spotify are making a living out of, yeah. of revenue. Um, yeah. So look, you know, that's that's where music got to, I suppose, or, or had, you know, and it still is to a point. Um, so from from the business of music, if you're a musician, um, you know, the, the medium for selling music really wasn't in the musician's favour. Um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a telling tale when the person who's getting absolutely rich out of music is the person who owns the streaming platform. Um, and if you're a... Yeah, if you're a solo artist or heaven help you if you're a four-piece and you get half a million streams of a track, which is fantastic... And, yeah, you know, each member of the band is getting 500 bucks in their pocket. Mm. Um, and the other thing about streaming, I suppose, is that, um, you know, the, the traditional medium, whether it's right or wrong, 
of music when it comes to vinyl was artists release an album. And an album isn't just a collection of tracks. An album is a story. Um, you know, I saw a saying recently that was fantastic and that, you know, a vinyl album allows an artist to, you know, present three acts on two sides. Um, and, and there's something about an album but telling a story as a complete um, collection of songs. You know, there's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. Um, and the thing about streaming is that you don't typically mm. do that. You play a track, you play another track. Yeah. Um, and if you're like me, often you wouldn't even get to the end of the track. You'd skip, you know, next song, next song, next song. Mm. So you never really stopped in it and listened to it, what an artist was trying to present you. Yeah. So, you know, so there I suppose the things that start to build from an artist's perspective. Um from um, from a fan's perspective, the thing you know, there's the, there's the things that we all know about vinyl. You know, the reality of vinyl is that um, it's tangible. You know, you pick up an album; it's got a size to it that's lovely to hold. Um, it's not a little CD. It's not your phone. It's this piece of art. Yes. You know, and it's exciting. You know, you get that album, you know, it's got this great artwork, you open it up, it might be a gate vault where there's even more of a story on the inside or even if it's not, you know, there's that act of sliding this record out, looking at mm. it, holding it. Um, and even the, 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 the fact that you've got a handle on the care adds something to the experience. So there's that physical experience. And there's this physical experience of playing a record. You know, it's the taking it out. It's the placing it on the turntable. It's the, you know, giving it a clean, checking the needles, you know, clean, and then dropping that needle and that moment of, of waiting. You know, yeah. there's, you know, if you drop the needle in the right place, there's a pause and then this music comes through. And and that act in itself is it's something that's engaging and, and talking to a lot of, you know, vinyl fans, myself included, um, it makes you feel a connection. There's a connection mm-hmm. there that you get to an artist and you get yeah. to a piece of music that you just don't get with streaming. You just That's don't right. Get it's with it's CD. a deliberate act. You need to set time aside and attention, and that doesn't Correct. happen with uh, streaming. Yeah, it's more of a you background know, thing. Yeah, and I think streaming's still got a place. Yeah. I mean, you can't play your vinyl in the car. You can't play the mm. vinyl at the gym. You know, it, it's yeah. it's there's a place for streaming. Um, it would be great if artists were actually remunerated in the way they deserve for their music. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are some platforms that are better than others, but the reality is, is that artists just aren't making money out of streaming. Yeah. Um, you know, but, but yes, as a medium, it has a place. Um, but, you know, vinyl is that act also of, of, of choosing what you're going to play, you know, flicking mm-hmm. through your records. What, what do I feel like? Yeah. And it actually makes you think a bit more about what you're going to play as opposed to, um, you know, streaming it. Oh, if you don't like the song, you skip it. And yeah. and also that, that overwhelming, you know, supply of music with streaming. Like, there's, you know, everything is available. Mm. And and too much choice is sometimes a bit of a difficult thing. It's like oh, you, you get overwhelmed and you and you kind of feel like you've got to make the perfect choice. And then no, that's not the right song, and that's not the right song. Yeah, I find that that with vinyl, um, you know, going through your collection, choosing what you're going to play, that physical act of of selecting that album, taking it out, taking the record out, and, and putting it on the player. At that point, I'm committed. You know, yeah. I'm not going to simply, you know, it's very unusual that I would then just know, go, that's the wrong one, lift the needle, 
put away. I'm, I'm committed at that point and mm-hmm. I'm committed that a, a, as a minimum I'm going to listen to that side. Yeah. You know, I'm going to listen to that collection of tracks and, and, and I suppose experience that music in the way in which the artist intended that music to be experienced. Um, okay. And then there's obviously the, the sound thing as well. You know, vinyl has a, a distinct sound as opposed to um, to streaming or to CD, and it's a bit like the um, the speaker cable conversation about audio yeah, with audio files as to what cable makes it sound better. Um, you know, personally, I believe that there's no right or wrong answer when it comes to sound quality, whether you're talking CD or whether you're talking. Um, high quality streaming, whether you're talking vinyl. Vinyl's just a different sound. Mm. Um, and to me, it's a more human sound. There's a warmth. There's a. Um, I've never had, I've never played a CD or streamed and thought, wow, that could just be sitting in the corner of the room. Those artists could be right there. But I do with vinyl because it, it there's, uh, I can't, I can't put words to it, but. There's a quality to the sound that makes me feel like it's real. Those mm-hmm. artists there, I can imagine them in a room playing that music. Yeah. Um, I and can so relate to that, yeah. yeah <laughs> it's right you know, on my alley. <laughs> it's just such a joyful experience. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, it is. If we uh, put ourselves into the position of you know, a, a band, a young band, who are maybe starting out, at, at what time of their career should they consider getting their recordings printed to vinyl? Is that something that you know, everybody should do all the time, or is it only for more advanced or successful artists? What is your recommendation? You know, looking at the business case of printing vinyl, um, what's your take? As on a that? fan, I would say that mm. artists should press vinyl all the time from the beginning <laughs> to the end. Of course, in a business sense, um, mm. the reality of vinyl production is that, l- l- like a lot of things, um, the more you press, the cheaper it gets. Um, yeah. There's certain setup costs in, in pressing vinyl. There's, you've got to cut lacquers, you've got to produce stampers, and they're a fixed cost. It doesn't matter whether you press 100 records or whether you press 1,000 records, that cost is the same. So the less you press, you know, the more you've got to wash that value back through those records. The more you press, you know, it dilutes that amount of money. Um, the same with printing. You know, the more you print, when it comes to jackets or if you want printed in the sleeves, mm. the cheaper it gets. So the reality is is that um, I mean, we'll do runs of anywhere from 100 up to 1,500. We've capped our orders at 1,500 at this stage. Um, and look, we could press one album, but the, the cost would be ridiculous. Um, so for us, it's 100 records. Um, and the reality is if you're pressing 100 records, you're not doing it as a commercial venture. You're not doing that to make a lot of money. Um, you're doing that because because you want it and you're doing it because um, you want to give it to fans, you want to give it to, well, not give, but you want fans to have it, you want friends and family to have it. Mm. Um, 100 records isn't a crazy amount to sell, so it's, you know, it's it's something that can be moved. Um, you want it as merch, you know, you want to be able to sell it at those gigs um, and you're going to make some money back, but, you know, you're going to, you know, you're not going to, you know, be rich. Yeah. Um, but you're going to make more you're going to make much, much more selling 100 records than you are 
you know, streaming a hundred thousand tracks. You know, that's that's just mm. the reality, which is yeah. you know, again, yeah, that's right. That thing about streaming. So it's um, a bit of a um, sort of like a business risk assessment. You know, um, putting my songs out on uh, Spotify is very cheap. That cost me just a couple of dollars. Correct. But getting you know hundred records return. done, that is a bit of upfront cost that I need to cough up. It is. But there's also a really good chance to make more money of these hundred records than I would ever have on you know selling my music on Spotify. Isn't that right? Yeah, oh, definitely. Mm. I mean, I think the reality is, if you're pressing a mm. hundred records, you know, and you sell them, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna get your money back. You probably cover your recording yeah. um, costs, and maybe you'll get a couple of bucks in your pocket. Um, yeah. To, from what I can see, and, and speaking to um, more uh, labels, two fifty to three hundred seems to be the tipping point. Beyond yeah. that, it really does become a commercial venture mm. um, in terms of getting a reasonable return um, yeah. on your investment. Um, but interestingly, you know, we've, like I said, we've sold 15, look, it even might be high. I think it might be maybe 20 orders so far. And the largest run we've sold today is 300. Um, and, um, you know, there's varied reasons, you know, we, we had a band in the, in the, um, uh, in the factory yesterday, a band called Square Tugs, which is a local Brisbane punk outfit. Um, and they're doing it because it's what they do. You know, mm-hmm. like they make music. It's yeah. and they want the vinyl because it's it's their music. It's it's that it's it's that tangible thing. It's like, look, mum, we made this. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's such a cool mm. you know experience. You know, and and it was really good having them out because we were talking about they're doing a color run and we were sort of looking at well, you know, we've got some physical color samples, so they'll go through those, and then we started to get excited about well, what if we did a marble or what if we did this? What if we did that? And then, you know, not to get too technical, but when you change colours, there's a – we've got to purge the extruder because otherwise, you know, you get you get um, colour overlap and it, mm. it's it's random. You can't – you know, who knows what it's going to look like. But, you know, they're punk. They're like, well, hell, bugger the colour purge. Let's just run a yellow into a red and then see what happens, you know. So <laughs> yeah, right. so that's really fun. You know? like, <laughs> and and it, it's fun for me, but mm. it's fun for them. It's creative. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. so it's 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 as much about the music as is about that whole experience of um, of of producing this physical medium. Um, mm. That's that's a reflection of them. Um, yeah. yeah, and it's the same in the artwork. It's the same in you know, the labels, and it's like you know, how do we want to present our music? How do we want to? Yeah, you know, how do we want to portray us mm. into the world of music? Um, yeah. Yeah, and that's really fun. Like that's 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 why we got into the business is those experiences. So, so you mentioned that uh, the setup cost is fixed. So, would it be a good business case to say, look, you know, I've got a young band. Um, we've played for a year or so. We've got our first recordings done. How about we start with a hundred? Uh, make a hundred records, see if we can, let's say, sell them with gigs and um, at pubs and shows and, you know, our website over, let's say, the next year. And if they sell, could we come back and order more? Would the setup cost be exactly the same or would that then, like a, a second issue, a reissue, would that uh, reduce the, the setup cost? Yeah, it would reduce the setup mm. cost. So, okay. So the basic process, you know, very quickly of making a record is an artist will come to us with their audio files. Yeah. Um, typically, they're digital files. Um, we can also our lacquer cutter can can cut from anything. They can cut from a cassette tape. Quality be terrible, but they can do it. Um, they can cut from reel to reel, so they can cut from tape. Um, but you know, most people it's digital files. So we then um, 
we we do not produce we do not cut lacquers and produce stampers in house at this stage, and and that's mainly because the setup cost for those items, um, in terms of you know the equipment that required is is high, um, yeah. and being a new business, we just can't afford that. Um, also, uh, to produce a stamper, which is the metal plate, it's effectively the negative for a, you know for a record run. That's something that we will look at. Um, because it's a process that um, we can uh, both understand and also control. It's mm. you know it's a it's a process that if you get the process set up correctly, you get the right training, yeah. um, you can do it. Cutting a lacquer is a different story. Um, to cut a lacquer, you 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 really need beyond the equipment, which is in itself um, costly and difficult to get. You really need to understand. Um, I think engineering. Um, you know, the best the best lacquer cutters, I think, are, you know, are mastering engineers because um, they're not remastering the music when they cut. Like that's mm. you know, it's it's mastered by the the artist's engineer, but they can they can understand that audio and they can understand what it might need to get the best out of of a vinyl lacquer cut. Um, so that's something that's not learn overnight it's not even learned in a few yeah. months you know the best the best lacquer cutters have got years and years of experience so if we were going to do that we need that person um so so at this stage we probably won't be looking at that in the near future um and just to sort of i suppose um sort of you know change paths for a moment we mm. um we're using a company in the u.s to cut out lacquers called master disc um, which is owned by a gentleman called Scott Hull. Now, MasterDisc had been around for about 40 years, and Scott um, started at MasterDisc as an intern probably 30 years ago, um, worked for them for, off the top of my head, I think about 10 years, went away and worked for some great mastering um, houses for probably another 10 years, and then came back to MasterDisc about 10 years ago and actually ended up buying the company. And so Scott's got you know an amazing history with both the business but also with mastering, and he's... Look, both he and MasterDisc have mastered um, and cut lacquers for the, the who's who of the music world. Um, you know, millions of, well, not millions, but, you know, countless artists that you've never heard of. But then also, you know, they've mastered and cut Springsteen. They've mastered and cut mm. um, The Stones, The Who. Wow. Um, you know, Lou Reed, you know, you know, um, New York was, you know, mastered. Lewis New York was mastered by them. Never by, never mind by Nirvana was mastered by these guys. Wow. Um, you know, more recently they've done um, The Weeknd, they've done Panic at the Disco, they've done Kanye, they've, you know, they've done Steely Dan, they've done, you know, you name it, they've mm. done it. Um, so there's this absolutely incredible depth of talent and experience. Um, we got talking with Scott probably four months ago and, you know, initially we approached them about will you do our lacquers. It actually turned out to almost be an interview process the other way. Like he really wanted to understand us before he would agree to cut our lacquers. Yeah. Um, so it was probably, you know, two months of back and forth before, before he finally said, yeah, we'll cut your lacquers. Um, so so that's, I think, one of the key things to us getting the quality right is that, we'll, you know, because that's, in my mind, that's half – Mm. the process of getting a decent record. You've got to get the right lacquer. You've got to get a yeah. great lacquer, and we've got that. So getting back to the original question, um, so we get the lacquers cut, and then from the lacquer you produce the stampers, and the stampers, um, it's a it's an electroplating process. It's a bit like magic, I think. Um, 
And in producing a stamper, you effectively destroy the lacquer. So that's it. Lacquer's gone. Um, so you want to make sure you've got a good stamper house because if you destroy the lacquer, you've got to recut it. Um, so, so that part, you know, that's money spent that you'll never, you know, um, get to use again. But the stampers, there's 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 a number of, um, there's I suppose three steps in producing stampers. Um, well, not three steps, but you call it steps. It's 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 three ways of um, of producing stampers. The first is what's called a one step, you know, process, and that's effectively you take a lacquer and you produce a single stamper. Um, and a single stamper will make, you know, rule of thumb up to about a thousand records. But if you just make a single stamper, the lacquer can never be used again. So that's that. You know, you're you're limited to a maximum of a thousand records. Yeah, right. Um, is there and, something like a backup? <laughs> well, there is, um, and that's a two-step or a three-step process. Mm. So one step is you produce a lacquer, and that's a negative. Um, so it doesn't have grooves, it has ridges because you then take that, you place that stamper into your moulds and you produce a record which has now got grooves. Um, a two-step process is that where, where you effectively take the stamper and then from the stamper you grow another stamper and that stamper is now a positive and it's referred to as a mother Um yeah, the industry really needs to work on its gender appropriate terms, but um, but you know that's that's what it's called is a, is a mother. Um, that mother can now produce another nine stampers. So okay. you've gone from having you know a one off that can produce maybe a thousand records, and if it deteriorates or if it's damaged, or you want to produce more than a thousand records, you can't. You've got to go through the whole process again. Now in two step, we've got a mother, and we've got a stamper. Um, and from the mother, we can produce more stampers. So mm. if well, you okay. want to produce 3,000 records, we can do that from that mother. Or mm. if the stamper gets damaged, we can produce another um, stamper from that mother. Mm. And then there's another process after that, which is called three-step. And that's um, where you grow a stamper. From a stamper, you make a mother. And then from the mother, you make a father. And that father you then use to produce up to 10 mothers. So you kind of go back the other way. And then those mothers can each produce 10 stampers. So you get to a point where you can actually produce 100 stampers. Each stamper can make up to 1,000 records. So in theory, you could make up to 100,000 records off one lacquer cup. Um, Now, for us, what we do, and we do this for a couple of reasons, we do everything as a two-step process. We won't do a single step. Um, it is cheaper, but it's not that much cheaper and it's not worth the risk in our mind um, because if we do a single step and that stamper shows up and it's been damaged in transit or, heaven forbid, as we're inserting into the mould, it gets damaged or it, you, know, you decide you want to run more records or for whatever reason it gets damaged, well, you've got to go through that whole process again. Yeah, so we do two-step and the mother stays with the plating factory which is over in the States, um, and we get the stamper sent to us. Um, and if there's a problem or if you want 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 records, we can do that from that mother. Um, now, in terms of whether you know, an artist wants to, say, run 100 records and then produce more, absolutely that can be done. Now, there's obviously a couple of caveats on that. Um, one is that the stamper... Um, 
isn't damaged, and obviously we take utmost care in making sure that they're not damaged. Mm. Um, when we, you know, before we insert a stamper into a mould, um, you know, we, we, we're meticulous in how we clean it. Um, the tiniest speck of dust, because our press is basically a hundred ton hydraulic press, it runs at about seventy five ton, but it's you know, it's a it's a big big ass press. Um, you know, if you have a, a, a sizable speck of dust that sits between the stamper and the mould, that will put an imprint through into the record and potentially over, you know, 100, 200, 300, 400 pressings will will damage that stamper, you know, mm. and you'll get a tick, you know, or a pop um, when you play that record in exactly the same spot on every single record. So we're incredibly careful about cleaning them before we put them in. And then when we take them out, we go through the same cleaning process and we store them carefully so that they're protected and they're dust-free. So, you know, that's a long way of going about saying, um, yes, if you do a run of 100, we can then run more. Um, and effectively, you're not paying for that stamper again. Um, so you're saving costs there. The other way that an artist could save cost is, is if they want to run 100, but they think there's a really good chance they're going to going to want to run more we would suggest they actually run the covers um to begin with because you know if you run 100 covers you know the price is x um Mm. if you run 200 covers it's suddenly dropped by 30 40 50 percent you know you really make significant savings in print Mm. in printing Mm. so you know you run 100 if you think you want to run more and you you know you can afford it run the covers you know, we can store the covers or you can store the covers. doesn't matter who stores the covers. Um, you've got them. So, you've, you know, for that next run, you've already got the covers. You're not paying for those. Yep. You've already got a stamper. You're not paying for that. So suddenly that second run becomes a lot more economical. Um, yes. So oh, that's that a, is that's fantastic a good way advice. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's um, fantastic advice. If you're okay with this, I'd like to ask you to talk me through the process from, from a musician's point of view one more time. So yeah. we're just in the rehearsal room. We wrote a couple of songs. We think we've got an album together. We need to now think about side A and B, which songs fit together, uh, how they end up in you know the overall duration. And now suddenly we have limits. While you know with streaming yeah. and CDs, there are also some limits, but... Can you talk about the limits that we have there for side A and B um, yeah, for, so there's, for vinyl there's a couple, records? Yeah, there's a couple of things. Um, there's a limit on time, um, yeah. so and it varies on the style of music that you're playing uh, or that you're recording. So, um, you know, sort of quiet acoustic, quiet jazz, um, you know, quiet acoustic, uh, sorry, um, um, you yeah, know, solo uh, type music. You can, you can press a longer record. Um, mm. The noisier that music gets, the more, uh, for want of a better term, intense that music gets, um, the less you can get onto an album. Um, and it basically just comes down to, like everything, it's about the amount of information you can get into a groove. Um, so just to, just to pick an average, if, if you're pressing uh, a good old-fashioned rock and roll record, 18 minutes aside is, is optimal. Under 18 is, is, 18 is great. Yep. Yeah. 18 to 21 is good. You know, mm-hmm. you can, you're going to get a good pressing. Above 21, you've got to start to think about how, you know, do you really want um, that music on there? Um, yeah. 21 to 24, depending on the music and depending on the type of uh, mix, yep, you can do it. And then above 24, you, you know, like 
we'd be mm. hesitant about whether you want to do that. Um, yep. And we would actually send the audio off to our to our lacquer cutter and say, hey, have a listen to this, see what you think, before we would mm. cut it. Um, so that's the first thing is, you know, is, is what's the duration? And yeah. is that because, you know, more intense music basically means it's, it's louder, let's say, stronger yep. hits on the drums, for example, and that means you need to cut the groove deeper, making the groove a little bit wider? Correct. And therefore, that's, that's, is, is that is that why? Yeah, that, that's yeah. that's yeah. essentially it, and it also yeah. comes down to mm. how close those grooves are together. Yeah, um, I see, and that has to do with how loud this record yes. plays back. Is that true? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, and you can have different mixes. You, know, you can have a yeah. loud mix, um, and again, that has a similar effect. So that's can I, that's. Can I ask yeah. more questions on that? I'm yeah, dying yeah, yeah. to ask questions yeah. about loudness. I'm not sure how much I can answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, over the last couple of decades, we've gone through something that we know as the loudness wars, where mm -hmm. everybody tried to have their record just a bit louder than the previous ones. And uh, that sort of has peaked, has hit a wall, and it seems to be rolling back, at least that's my, uh, in the digital world to some degree. What about vinyl? If, uh, you know, if uh, we give our mixes, let's say, to a mastering engineer and ask him to make it as loud as technically possible, Would that translate well to a vinyl record, or would you recommend to get it mastered differently? Um, look, it's an interesting one, and, there's, and it, there is a number of um, different opinions on this. You know, there's a lot of people mm -hmm. say you've got to master specifically for vinyl. Um, interestingly, um, so masters who cuts our lacquers, they do have specific technical requirements for for how to cut. Uh, how to master for vinyl, but it's not, it's it's less in the, um, I suppose, the format and more in the mix. Mm. Um, but what they do say is, is you don't need to over-process, you know, or basically compensate for vinyl unless you think it's absolutely necessary. Um, and electronic music is probably a good example of that um, because, um, you know, electronic music um, it, can be, I suppose, mixed differently for, for digital than it can to vinyl. Um, I don't know the, the, pure, the, the pure technical reasons for that, um, but I just know that's, that's sort of mm. a, you know, a reason. Um, the thing about a digital master is that you can use a limiter to help you sort of average out the level, um, and you can use that, I suppose, to, to you know, make it louder, make it quieter, those sorts of things. Um, basically... But the thing is, is that if you if you use that limit to, to basically, you know, really pump up the volume of a digital recording, the reality is, is to get a good vinyl cut, the vinyl master, the vinyl lacquer cut is probably going to actually lower that back down. Um, so, you know, if you want to if you want a loud record, you know, it, it's not about getting your digital mix loud. It's it's really about recording it well and balanced, so that The, the lacquer cutter can then, um, I suppose, cut a pure representation of that music. And then really it's your amplification that, that is going to make that loud. Um, that is problem, good. That is good. So, you know, yeah. I was really waiting for these words and you phrased that so well. So you basically said that by making it loud digitally, there's nothing to be gained on the vinyl side. That doesn't no. make it louder on the vinyl side. Oh, look, it, so it, makes can, it, it can it make it louder but the you do, loud doesn't equal quality. Exactly. That's the problem, yeah, is that yeah, you're exactly. foregoing mm. quality at the sake of loudness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, mm. the reality is, is, is that get the, 
get the best mix possible yeah. that truly represents your music and how you want that heard, regardless of the volume level. Yes. You're always going to get the best outcome. Oh, so many people you know? need to hear exactly that. Yeah. We had a question <laughs> yes, recently yes. that, I'm going to be honest, I mm, had to Google, mm, we had a question mm, from someone that mm. said, oh, are you guys going to be redlining your, you know, your, your mixes? And mm. I kind of thought, well, hell, what the hell is redlining? You know, so I did mm. a bit of research and spoke to someone. And, and basically, yeah, redlining is that act of, of really amping up the volume in your digital mix. Yeah, um, going into it. Clipping. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the reality is, is that mm. you're then impacting the quality of the vinyl cut you get. Yes. Um, yes. So, so yeah. I, I, look, I, I think the best advice I could mm. give is 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 mix music so that it sounds great. Yeah. Um, oh. Yeah. Whether it's That's quiet, it. whether it's loud. That's it. You know, That's and it. then we're going to yeah. get you. you you're going to yeah. get the best quality sound. Yeah. You know? And if cool. you want it loud, mm. we'll use a bigger amp and a bigger set of speakers. Yeah. You know. You yeah, know, because it, it's that well same said. old thing. It, mm. You know, it doesn't matter how big an app. It can be big. It can be small. Your speakers mm. can be like however many watts. There's a point when you turn that up that it starts to distort and it sounds like crap. Okay, yeah, upping your digital mix is just in some ways the equivalent of that. I'm definitely on board with that. So, in other yeah. words, we're not trying to achieve artificial loudness in the mastering process, but Correct. we preserve quality instead. And yeah. then on the consumer's end, that's when we just bring up the volume a touch more. I also Correct. found that um, mixes that are sort of overmastered or you know, overprocessed in mastering, I seem to fatigue quicker and I'm ready to switch to the next song earlier. Well, the songs that are not as strongly processed, I can listen to a thousand times in a row and I never get sick of them. That's something yeah, that I observe yeah. myself. Um, Look, I, a I'm going to... Yeah, level of fatigue I'll, I'll, there. Yeah, I'll, I'll mm. openly admit, like, I mm. know very little about mixing. And I've had a couple of people mm. kind of chip me about that in the past. Mm. You know, like, well, how on earth are you going to press records if you don't understand how to, you know, mix or master a record? The reality is that's not my job. Mm. Yeah, my, my yeah. job is to press you the best representation of what your mastering engineer has produced. Yes. Um, and I do that by getting the best quality lacquer I can get cut. I do yeah. that by getting the best quality stamps I cut, by having a great machine. Mm. And for me, the job is things like understanding what temperature my vinyl has got to be at yeah. so that it perfectly melds into those grooves mm. and captures every single little divot in that groove so that you yes. get the best possible playback. Excellent. Now, that said, you know, in the background, I'm, I'm, you know, reading everything I can to, you know, to understand it more because I think that it's important for me in the long run to understand that. Um, mainly because I can then sort of <laughs> answer the sort of questions mm. that I get asked, but I don't need it to be able to produce a good record. Um, and the thing is, as a music fan, what I notice is that um, it's not just the mixing and the mastering; it even comes down to the sort of hi-fi gear you're listening on. Um, I love tubes. You know, mm. I love I love valve amps, but my favourite setup, which I've sort of got in the factory at the moment, is um, a valve preamp and a solid state power amp, because the power amp for me will give me um, it, it gives the music um, uh, you know that that power essentially um, gives the music a freedom. You know, it doesn't feel like it's being forced. Yeah. The music suddenly comes into its own. And then the valve preamp gives me that tone that I love mm. out of, of valve, you know, that warmth, that airiness, that breathness, you know. Um, so that combination for me is fantastic. Now, the reality is, is that there's certain music that I play on that where I could just sit there and drift away. Mm. Now, there's other music that I'll play on that setup and it's like, it just doesn't really 
feel comfortable. Um, you know, punk is a classic example or really, really hard driven rock through a valve amp, in my opinion. You know, other people will differ, but in my opinion, it's, it's just got a, um, it's got a, it's not a muddiness. It just doesn't sound um, as, as free. It sounds forced. Yeah. I've also mm. got a, you know, a fairly big sizable integrated Sansui amp, solid state amp. Mm. Um, now I play punk through that and it sounds fantastic. I you see. Know? And I think there's a similar thing with, with, yeah. with mixing and mastering, you know, yeah. like you've got to, you've got to be true to the type of music you're, you're playing yeah. and you've got to be true to the type of music you're mixing. Um, That's so true. You yeah. know, so if you mix punk or rock, you know, the wrong way, um, if you over-process it, as you say, um, it, it, it you, know, you don't get that, that, that energy, that freedom. It, it does sound forced. Okay. Um, you know, so again, you know, you, you need you need to treat your music with respect the whole way through. Mm. You know, you've given it the respect of, of, of creating it, of playing it, of, of practicing, of, of, of yeah. all those hours and hours and days and weeks and months. So give it the same respect when you master it and, you know, when you record oh, well, it and master so it. And, mm. you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, it's got to be the most amazing studio and the most amazing mastering engineer, you know. Mm. You know, I heard a okay. great expression the other day, bedroom pop, you know, like <laughs> it's, you know, recorded in bedroom on someone's laptop. It's it's about, you know, understanding what you're trying to achieve and, and, mm. and putting the right process in place for that type of music. And that's yep. the whole way through. It's the mastering. Um, it's, you know, it's the lacquer cut. It's yep. the getting the right stamp of um, producer to, you know, to really um, capture what's on that lacquer. Mm. Um, and then for us, it's it's the same process for us when we press, regardless of the type of music. Yep. It's treating that stamper with respect, getting it absolutely spotless, getting our vinyl temps right, getting our getting our pressing times right. Mm. You know, it's not just opening and closing, you know, a press and moulds for us. It's there's heating stages. It's making sure the first stage is right, the second stage is right, the third stage is right. Make sure the cooling is the right amount of time so that, you know, that record comes out of that mould um, stable but not hard because if it comes out hard and then we go to trim that record, you get a rough edge, you know, and it can actually mm. almost warp the record a bit because the knife is pulling at that record as you're, as you're trimming. So... They're the things wow. that are critical for me um, wow, that's a, in that's terms a, of producing good music. That's a precision mechanical process, isn't it? It is. It's, yeah. it's like, you know, and we've been tuning this machine down to the half second in stages, you know, and wow. and, and balancing out the desire to get our, our cycle times up, mm. you know, because obviously the more records we can produce, the quicker we can get through yeah. runs. But it gets to a point where it's too quick. You know, okay. you're not heating it fast enough or you're not cooling it long enough or you're... Yeah. You know, you're not giving that that PVC time to actually meld into a good puck. So, you know, okay. and we think we've got that balance right. I want to steer back to to that example of, of a band working with you, if that's yep. okay. So let's say, you know, we've recorded our songs. We decided for, let's say, two sides of approximately 18 uh, minutes. Yep. And now we probably have the high energy songs at the beginning of a side and the quieter, calmer songs towards the end of each side. So we're all ready to go. Um It's no, interesting it, just on that. Um, yeah. I, like a lot of people, um, you know, had an idea around the order of songs as not a 
technical thing, but about, you know, you want to play your big, uplifting, fast, powerful songs at the beginning of an album to bring a listener up. Yes. And then towards the end of the side, you bring them back down into the gentle. Mm-hmm. The it's journey. actually, um, from what I can see, it, it's actually, that's the, that's the cart, not the horse. The reason it's come about that way is that the, the, a record, the outside diameter, is um, is much le- uh, sorry much greater than the inside diameter. So you think about the arc of a needle as it goes around a record. When it's on the outside, it's a lot more gentle than by the time it gets to the inside. By the time the needle gets to the inside, that 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 circumference has gotten mm-hmm. tighter, and yes. so there's more force. You know, for want of a better term, the needle wants to pop out and skid across the record because you're getting tighter and tighter and tighter. So if you put your really hardcore loud track at the end of a record, you've got to lower that, that volume. You've got to really start to subdue the, you know, the volume because otherwise you're going to mm. blow the needle out of the track. So that's where that actually came from. You know, you put your, your noisier tracks on the outside because it's a, it's a far gentler yes. you know, sort of circumference than on the inside. So all these years, you know, when I thought, oh, it's this whole idea artists have got about, you build them up and you bring them down. Well, in actual fact, that's come out of the fact that, you know, it's just the physical nature of a record. Mm. So that's that's a big part of what drives it. Now, obviously, if you, like I've got a, you know, I was talking about Lou Reed New York before, I was playing yesterday, and it's only three tracks, and on some of the sides, two tracks per side. Yep. And it's, it's loud the whole way through. Now, What's interesting on that is that on some records, when you look at them, there might only be three tracks, and the groove will start at the outside and actually finishes right at the inside at the run-out groove. So they've used the full, for want of a better term, width of that that side to be able to cut. And, you know, the tracks get obviously quieter as you get sort of more and more to the inside. This Lou Reed album, you know, it's they're tight, and there's this massive run-out groove. And... I think that's just because, you know, he's like, I'm going to play my songs loud, which <laughs> I want them to, to mm. be held with physics, you know. And so they've actually compressed those to the outside so that, you know, even those noisy songs, they're still really only sitting in the middle of the record. So you're not getting that tight circumference at the end. But yeah, anyway, right. I digress. Well, yeah. well, there's so much to it. It's, it's such a physical process, isn't it? It is. Once my band hands it over, uh, let's say, to you and your mastering engineer yep. for cutting, um, how soon can we uh, expect results? Yep. So, how long does it take? Um, so, right now, our lead times are safely running at 12 weeks. Um, could be a little bit longer if you want to test pressing and you want to spend a bit of time with that test pressing, but as a rule of thumb, 12 weeks. Now, um, the reality for us is that, you know, if and, you know, we think we will and we hope we will get busier, there'll be pressure on that. Um, now, The reason for that 12 weeks, if you break it down for us, is mostly driven around the mast, uh, sorry, the lacquer cup and the stampers. And the stampers is actually the biggest part. Mm. Now, in Australia right now, there's no one who produces, uh, who will do lacquer cuts and um, stampers commercially. Um, so, at the other two pressing plants in Australia, there's Program and Zenith, both down in Melbourne. Zenith have um, uh, in house lacquer cup and stampers, and Program like us don't. Um, so, um, so put Zenith aside, program are probably in a similar boat to us in that we've got to go offshore to get our, our lacquers and our stampers, and that's another reason why 
we really would like to get stampers in house at some stage in the next couple of years. Um, so if okay, so if you start at day one. To start an order, we need, um, apart from that little horrible thing around money and deposits, we need your audio files and we need your artwork. Um, the artwork, the jackets we get produced locally in Australia, where you know, we want to keep as much in Australia as we can in terms of um, supply chain. The labels at this stage we have to send offshore. And um, labels are a whole conversation in their own right and this has actually been one of the trickier things that we've had to learn um and just to very quickly get off track and just to explain it labels aren't glued or stuck onto a record after a record is made the labels are actually fused into a record when you press the record they're simply placed on top you know on the top and the bottom of the puck as that's pressed and the heat and the pressure is what actually fuses the label into the record. Mm, okay. Now, that's obviously a high-stress process. So to do that, you need to use um, specialist paper and the right type of ink. And the paper actually has a very high clay content, um, which allows it to, I suppose, both take that heat and pressure and also uh, uh, you know, deal with the stress of, of that pressing and that 75 tonnes of pressure. Um but it's not just getting the right paper and the right ink. We, we have to actually bake the labels before we make a record. So, you know, we literally take the labels, we put a metal rod through the hole, um, we use an air gun and we sort of gently blow them to separate them all out and get any dust and particles out of there. And then we literally whack them into an oven at 130 degrees and we bake them. And we'll bake them for about 13 hours. Wow. Um, and depending on... Um, the ink, depending on the colour of the ink, depending on the humidity where you are, um, the, the baking time varies. So the factory that we're friends with over in the UK, Millsborough, um, they only have to bake their labels for about three to four hours. Where We found that we had to bake our labels and we have to bake our labels overnight. Um, and that's to remove any moisture because mm. if you don't, they stick. So mm. um, so that's, you know, that's obviously um, a process. So you need that specialist printing and the paper is, um, it's not difficult to get, but it's, you know, you need to order a certain volume and there's a lead time in getting that paper. So right now in Australia, um, there's no one doing those labels, but our, um, our printing plan is actually working on um, on doing them and they've been sending us some samples to test, some of which have been working really well and some of which haven't, um, and we're working with them to kind of refine them. But right now, we have to go overseas for those. So we get your artwork, we send, you know, we, we check that it's all okay, it meets the... The, um, the requirements, we send that off and that gets printed. But the audio files, what we do is we, we send them over to MasterDisc and they'll cut a lacquer and that's about a two-week process, um, you know, based on their backlog and, 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 and where they're at, but, you know, roughly two weeks. It then gets shipped to the stamper factory and right now plating is, is one of the big bottlenecks in the industry because there's a lot of factories that have their own in-house galvanic stampers and there's a lot of factories that don't. So there's specialist factories that obviously make those stampers. Um, and like everything in the industry, they're under incredible pressure because there's a lot of demand. So for us, we're running at somewhere between sort of, you know, five to six weeks to get stampers turned around. So if you look at that, we're already at sort of, you know, six to eight weeks. Then you've got shipping. So the reality is it's it's sort of, you know, eight to nine weeks 
you know, before we get those stampers back in-house. So we can't even, you know, look at the record presser in order for eight to nine weeks. So we then get those stampers in. Um, you know, we, um, we, we, you know, we make sure we've got our labels because you have to have the labels to obviously press the records, make sure we've got everything. And then when we've got the jackets, we've got the labels, we've got the sleeves, we've got the stampers, mm-hmm. that's when we're ready to press. Um, we supply test presses um, on orders of 250 or more and under 250 records we can supply them for a cost um, and the reason we don't supply them on smaller runs is just the setup cost it's just it's mm. too high to be able to absorb it we'd need to push the price up even more of our records if we were going to do that um, so but you can't get them so if you're getting test presses, we would then run your test presses um, and we run all our test presses as 140 gram black um, and we would typically run, um, well, we've run a few first few records and any run are always going to get dumped, um, but we produce those test presses and we send them back. Um, you check them. Now, you know, what we suggest on checking test presses is that um, you need a number of ears and ideally, you know, you need a number of setups. So, you know, send one to your, to your, um, uh, you know, your recording engineer, your mastering engineer, get them to listen to it. You listen to it, band members listen to it, friends, whoever, someone you know who loves music, get them to listen to it. And it's important to understand that what you're listening for is you're not listening for the mix because the mix is predetermined. It's been produced by your mastering engineer, you know, and the audio quality essentially has come out of, of your recording. Mm. What you're listening for is background noise, so in the intro and outro and in the track breaks, is it quiet or is it kind of, you know, is there a static, is there a noise? Yeah. Because if there is, then we've done something wrong. Or well, um, my needle is messed up. Well, that and that's mm. why you need to check it on different setups as mm. well. So you're listening to, is there background noise? Um, is, there, um, is there a pop or a crack or does it skip? Mm. Now, if there's a pop or a crack or something, on a record, um, what you want to then do is you want to check the other records on the system that you're using. And if it's only one pop or crack on one record on your system and it doesn't happen on another system, well, obviously it's a problem with your system. But also it could just be that that particular record has yeah, is, is got some dirt on it or look, you know, there's a scratch or something. So you want to check all of them to make sure that it's not a problem in the same yeah. spot in every single record. Because if it is a problem in the Got same it. spot in every record, yeah. that's a problem with us, with so our standby. It's actually not a creative approval process anymore. It's a technical health and safety procedure where you just rule out, you know, any that yeah. the records misbehave. Yeah. yeah. Got it. And again, okay. listen to it on different setups. If you can listen to it on a great setup, do. Yeah. If you can listen, you know, if you've got a cheap setup, listen to it on that. Mm. You know, listen to it on various setups. Okay. Um, and now we've approved this. We're happy with that. Yeah. So we give it back to you or yeah. we keep it, I guess. We keep the test pressings for... You can keep the test pressings. Yeah. All yeah. we need to know is that you're happy. Yeah. Take you tell us you're happy okay. and then we press. Good. So at mm. that point, what we do is um, pretty simple. We get it into our production schedule. Mm. Uh, the day before, we bake those labels. Um, and then the next day, we then press your records. Now, when the records come out of the press, they're not ready to sleeve because they've been cooled in the mould with the, with the cool water and they're coming out at, well, look, it varies, but for argument's sake, say they're coming off that press at 35 to 40 degrees. Now, 
we we can and we do, you know, we can take them and play them and check them at that point in time. And we do check. We check, you know, kind of on a regular basis every sort of 15, 20 records that come out. We're, we're taking one off and we're listening to it. And, again, we're listening for intro, outro, you know, track breaks. Is there, you know, any background noise? Is it sounding good? And that's, you know, have we got the vinyl temperature right? Have we got the pressing process right? And, you know, generally we are. So, yep, happy, good. Press that rum. What we then do is we take those records and we let them cool. We let them cool in a very particular way. We've got some, uh, we've got a cooling system, and what we effectively have done is we've got um, a series of aluminium trays with a with a six mil rod spike that comes off it. So we take you know five to ten records depending on what the the actual atmosphere temperature is and what the humidity is. Slide those on, and then we put an aluminium plate on. And that aluminium, aluminium plate is is wider than the record. Then we put another five to ten records, another aluminium plate, and we build that up to about you know kind of thirty to forty records. Now we then take that and we store it away in a you know nice, clean, dust-free room, and we let that stabilise, and that'll stabilise for you know 12, 24 hours longer. And what that does is it effectively just allows that record to perfectly cool. Even if the ambient temperature in the room is 30 degrees, it doesn't really matter. It's not about getting them cold. It's about letting that vinyl stabilise, letting the PVC stabilise and become perfectly hard, solid. And what those aluminium plates do is they're effectively, they're helping the the records um, stabilise flat, which is obviously important, but they also act as a heat sink and they help to draw the Mm -hmm. heat out and out through the aluminium plates. Um, And so... Yeah, we, we let the record stabilise, and then once they're stable, um, we then pack. And and the packing's, you know, it's a simple process, but it's actually one of the most important QA processes for us because it's the last time someone from our factory, you know, one of us gets to check your record before it goes. So as we're packing, every single record is checked. You know, we look at that record. Is it clean? You know, are there any obvious defects? Is it flat? Great. Then we sleeve it, and then we pack it. And then it's ready for shipping, you know, either being shipped or, or picked up. Um, and if anything, 140 gram records um, are the trickiest to press because, yeah, it's about keeping them reasonably flat. Now, a mm. 140 gram record isn't going to be dead flat. Some are, but some are. You will always get, a, you know, you'll always get a little bit of a wave yeah, a um, up, yeah. on some of them. Yeah. Now, what we're doing is we're checking and making sure that it's a little bit of a wave. It's not a big wave. Um, even a big wave will still play, but it doesn't look good. <laughs> mm. You know, it's, you, you look at it and think, oh, that's not quite right. So um, even though it'll play, it's got that big wave, no, it gets rejected um, so that we're making sure we're only sending records that, that not just play that look good. 180s are a lot easier. They're a lot more, you know, you, you know they, they come off the press reasonably flat, so there's not yep. much of a, a process in the cooling to, to make sure they're flat. Um so yeah, so packed um, and ready for either shipping. When we ship, we've got um, we ship in two boxes. We, we double box. We've got a single box that will take, um, depending on whether it's a, a, a single three mil spine record or a gatefold, it'll take about you know single record three mil spine will take twenty five records, and then we've got and that's a really heavy walled cardboard. Um, which is good for both insulation but also to protect them. Um, and then we then take 
two of those boxes and we sleeve it into another box, which is also mm. a heavy walled box, so that they're double boxed. And we've also designed our packaging so that um, we, we're, we're packing into the first box flat, but then when we pack those two boxes into the main box, they're packed vertically. Because, mm. you know, always keep your records vertical. Don't ever, like, store your records long-term sitting flat, especially not with other records piled on top. Because yeah. that's a really good way for your records to walk. Um, so, again, you know, we're making sure that even in the packing process that we're taking the utmost care so that those records get to you in the best condition they possibly can. Um, so that whole process right now, you're looking at about 12 weeks until it's ready for delivery. I mean, Fantastic. obviously, we, we want to try and keep that as much as possible. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like everything in the industry at the moment, the industry is overwhelmed. So, mm. obviously, if we get overwhelmed with orders, um, we'd need to revisit that. Um, yeah. But there's a couple of things we can look at doing. You know, we may look at um, splitting the stampers and sort of, you know, mm. sharing between a couple of factories to see if we can keep things speeded up. We'll yep. obviously always be trying to make sure that we can keep a good a good deadline. Okay. Um, and have you got any recommendations, uh, things you've learned from maybe clients of how to sell on the records to the fans? Are there any things that uh, my band should definitely do in order to you know, get uh, to, to sell these records ASAP? Um, look, I think one of the best ways is is um, if you're a band that plays live, selling them at gigs, mm. you know, seems to be, you know, like you come out of a gig with that buzz and, you know, I don't know, like anyone else, I just look for where can I buy this album. Um, yeah. So that's obviously one way, um, you know, like I was about to say the kids these days, which shows my age, but, you know, social media is great, <laughs> you know, like there's, you know, great communities on there and, and, and people, you know, there's, there's obviously ways to sell there. Um, we're looking at doing some arrangements with a couple of local record stores where they'll sell on consignment um, our, you know, for bands that we press. Um, you know, and I think it's just really those normal channels. Um, the, the bands that seem to do well in terms of sales, I think, are the ones who've got a really strong online present, presence mm. and online community um, because, you know, fans want to buy the album because they want to feel like they're helping the bands you know they want to feel like they're kind yeah. of engaging with that band so you know the easier you can make it to engage with um for fans to engage with you i think it's easier it is to to make those sales and uh, what's the best place to to find you online if uh, somebody wants to reach out and you know learn more about you and your business and maybe yep. reach out so, to, to make records where should yeah, we send so those listeners web address is uh, suitcaserecords or one word .com.au uh, and we're on Instagram at, at suitcaserecords um, and we're on Facebook. I know I should know this. I think we're, again, suitcase records on Facebook um, and they're the best uh, best places. Um, you know, Instagram, interestingly, we're getting a really good engagement from really good um, sort of um, sort of genuine feedback from from um, from, you know, just people who are really interested and you know it's worth saying that um really great support you know we're we're finding that people seem to really want us to succeed you know and yeah. we're getting this great great support great feedback um which is really nice you know it's, mm. it just makes it worthwhile when you get people seem to be genuinely excited about what we're doing um, yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, it yeah. is an amazing procedure, and I learned so much today. I had no idea just how complex making records is. So yeah. it's really insightful. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I wish you You're all the best on. for your business endeavors. Uh, thank it's you very much. Something really exciting, and you know, 
the more music we have, the better as a society, as a country. So you're doing That's a great true. thing there. That is absolutely true. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate Thanks, chatting to you. Thank you. Okay. See you later. This was Mr. Neil Wilson of Suitcase Record from Brisbane, a vinyl manufacturing plant and a family business. It's a startup, so uh, I really hope that they're doing really well. Thank you, Neil, for sharing all your wisdom. And hopefully many, many amazing records will come out of your facilities over the years to come. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe right here in your podcast player and tell all your friends and fellow musicians about this podcast series because the more listeners we get, the better. If you want to reach out to me, you can do so via my website, mixartist.com.au, where I offer mixed on services and recording services for everybody who needs a little bit of help. And by the way, I've looked very deeply into the right production techniques for vinyl records so if you want to do a vinyl record and you would just like to have a technical chat about mixing and mastering and all the do's and don'ts, why don't you just reach out to me? Stay tuned. Uh, there are some phenomenal um, episodes coming up with extremely successful musicians. Um, I hinted this before, but today I won't say anything more about it. Just stay tuned. Uh, it's coming up in the next episodes. You have a fantastic week. And that's all for today. Bye for now. Bye for now.